the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bandied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not... Um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are a persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and... And I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over and setting up a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we saw as nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No, but until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was, are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or, or, or theocracy or, or, or theology or things of that nature. And so it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is... Um 
an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrary into this notion of, of again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians have used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this, Doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly, an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. 
We're going to take a time out on that point point. come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out, back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly... um, What's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or or, or, or in, in not, not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and, of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others... Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot, experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface, um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, Some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it. And now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can't pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. 
What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of a true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone study race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonged to this group, would you be more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that Christian, anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... It begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there, there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well... You know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive, and so. While, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things where we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented 
I told you about when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people's Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous, I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder... Um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that to uh, a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, arts, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of... Um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Christian Bodies. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating go into a Hindu temple for the very first time and there's much pomp and circumstance and you're required to take your shoes off and so on and so forth and if you've never been in one it's fascinating because a Hindu temple at least the ones that we visited was not a single altar to one god but in fact it is a an almost large courtyard like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods within the the deist system of Hinduism, there's 33 million different gods. And it's amazing as you watch 
the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God or a God to try to get that God's attention, to try to get that God's appeasement. And it really is heartbreaking from a Christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this. And you can you can sense about you demonic presence all around and the depravity of man and it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to God and somehow connect with him and appease him and yet we know from the story of the Bible that in reality God came down In fact, God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty. We're joined now by Johnny Moore, who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion, and vice president of prestigious Liberty University, and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me. And then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. And uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you. Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture. People sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth. It, it, It paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God God came down, and as he did so, he, he, he rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, and in so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as I, as I called him, in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth, and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made, he got dirty, and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again. So that's why I called the book Dirty God. I wanted to reflect on the on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of Jesus Christ. In our fallen nature, all of this is counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, it is. It, it's, you know, not natural that... that you know, we we aren't to other people the way God is to us in Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, we we hold people accountable and we hold grudges. And in, in the face of justice, God is just. But what He is is He's also a God a God of grace. And so He wrote a story that has been the plot of every novel of any success and every movie that we watch. You know, everything through all of history is the same plot. This plot of redemption over and over. It's grace, and grace has gotten and grace is given, and Jesus is the picture of that. And I think it's time we resurrect the image of this of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty so the world could get clean. You know, as we oftentimes will hear the picture of, of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't ten commandments. There was just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the ten that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, okay, I'm going to come up with yet another plan, and it it ultimately kind of in the perspective of some 
suggesting that that it made God seem weak, but yet in your new book, Dirty God, you you wonderfully paint the picture that in fact uh, the notion, as we said before, of God getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness. Yeah, you know, the, the, the easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve. I mean, we were the ones that turned our, our back on God. But what did he do? I mean, this is, this is the God who made everything. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough. The, the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called, called Nazareth, and eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off of a cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it took God's strength. Not, it's not a, a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve in order to give us a second chance. And that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my, my book, Dirty God, is really a book about the kindness of God the kindness of God given to, the, to us as recipients of grace and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And it is, story. it is at so many levels so uncomprehensible, because I think we all have an idea about things that uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do, and yet all of a sudden we find this image of the king of kings, coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do. Yeah, and the people he hung out with. I mean, mm. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories about, about Jesus, is that he chose these disciples. I mean, he, he chose these people. And you look at their stories, and, you know, you, you, Peter, who's, who's, you know, who speaks before he thinks, and he's rough around the edges. You've got Doubting Thomas, who's, who's you know, clearly like a pessimist. You've got James and John, and, and you've got you're the Sons of Thunder, they called them. You've got all of these different personality types. These people always making mistakes. Jesus gets tired of them eventually and says, "Why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me?" And and I think that's part of the the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came and he could have come as as a king. I mean, he could have he could have done it that way. He he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome, but instead he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum, and he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us, mm. and, and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection in their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect. And Jesus arrives as a god that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that everyday people, like the people listening right now, will feel that God cares about them and he does that's the image of jesus the dirty god and what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across. I mean, you, you, as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this 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 ragtag group, most of whom most most decent fathers 
uh, that care about their daughters would, would, would hardly allow your daughter to date any of these guys, <laughs> let alone look at this group and say, as very God himself, I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end, it, 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 it most necess- necessarily takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this, the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it? It, it sure does, and what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples, you know, Jesus saw in these followers of his what they didn't see in themselves. He didn't see them where they were. He, he saw where they could be, and he, he both preserved their personalities, but he also redeemed their personalities. And you see how he used the characteristics of these, these people in the, in the story of Christianity, you know, when you read it through the Bible. Now, one of the things that really believe the Church needs to do is resurrect the, the human side of Jesus. You know, we, the, the Church believes and has believed for, for centuries that Jesus was fully God, He was fully divine, and He was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way in his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening even to our conversation now that feels like they're the person least likely to be used by God to do something is maybe the most likely person, because because our God is a God who takes joy in giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle that Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when thousands of people put their faith in him. So not, not only using not, where we are. not not only using the the least likely individuals, but but just as importantly, and and I'll have you go into detail on this, Johnny, after the break to to help illustrate. God's willingness to to literally come down and get his hands dirty, and that is to reach out and touch into the lives of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the, the start of the book, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, out of India, which parallels the story we see in Mark chapter 1, and we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, pastor, advisor, professor of religion, vice president of Liberty University, he is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through, of course, uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at Johnny, J-O-N-N-I-E, Johnny Moore, with an E at the end there as well, dot O-R-G. Back to more of our conversation in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And back to our conversation, Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, also serves as vice president of Liberty University. You start the book out, and I, and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark 1 and 41. And, and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand, and, and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day, if you would, Johnny, just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper. You know, we, we don't really understand this in our, our modern time, because we, and particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing uh, diseases and to the degree that it was in the, in the first century. But um, in the first century, I mean, when, when someone had leprosy, when they arrived inside of a town, if they even came into a town, they had to carry a bell with them, and they had to ring the bell. They had to announce themselves as a leper. I mean, if you saw a leper at the end of the road, you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction. And so can you imagine when Jesus, in this like show-stopping moment, decides that the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy to. I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all, all heard about where, where, the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus' feet with her hair. But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the, of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the, on the fringes of society. And it wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show-stopping moments in the Gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of this message. But he reached to the rejected ones, grace and mercy and the gospel. And can you imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of God? I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's no wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time with. It was interesting. We, we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods, I don't know what that this is the singular case of a God that would be as a man. I guess it is. I mean, this this, this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my my work around the world. I, I, I've degreed in religion. I teach religion. I, I travel quite a bit. And I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in northwest India. I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places in, in, in South, Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions. And the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples. The Sikhs have their five caves, and the Muslims have their five pillars, and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down the planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us. And where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of 
good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them. The story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path, because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the ladder ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for him to climb down to grab us and take us back with him. And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly uh, big within Hinduism, I mean, in in some cases, in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment um, how beautiful the child might be is looked on with, with, with great fear and embarrassment, least that you draw the ire of a jealous God. And so the notion of trying to appease or avoid God uh, and his wrath in so many ways is is inherent to all, virtually every major world religion. And yet here is one where it's not a matter of what we need to do for God, but rather what God has done for us. That, as Scripture reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. That through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation and then restoration of a relationship with the very Creator of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic. Even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute, uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, It's amazing to see that God came down to get his hands dirty. The book called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, again, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through Amazon.com, bookstores around the Bay Area, and of course, through Johnny's website at johnnymore.org. That's J-O-N-N-I-E M-O-O-R-E dot O-R-G. Johnny, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today. We'll hope to visit with you again soon. Thanks. My, my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, brother. There's Johnny Moore again, Vice President of Liberty University, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.